Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. All right. Hey, if you have your Bibles, open it up to Acts chapter number eight. My name is Charles. I'm the high school pastor here and then also oversee the family ministries. Excited to be jumping into our Acts series. And it's going to be Acts chapter eight. If you're using that blue Bible in front of you, it's going to be ten, page 1088. 1088. Regardless of how you're reading the scripture this morning, when you get to the place and you're at Acts 8, would you mind standing with me? We have a chunk of scripture, so we're gonna stand out of respect for God's word as we read this morning. All right, Acts chapter number eight, verse number one, Saul and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip, who's going to be the main character of our story this morning, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. Right here in this gap, we're going to go ahead and skip over it, but a fantastic story of the gospel going to Samaria, Holy Spirit coming, sorcerers and bribery, all of it. That'll be left for, your, for yourselves to read. But let's go ahead and skip to verse number 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise. Go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to, he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join to this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see here is water, what prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way of rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Astus and he passed through. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. Dear God, I pray that tonight, <laughs> I pray that this morning, uh, you would speak to us through this example that you've left for us of Philip. God, I pray that you would help us to grow in our missionary fervency. Lord, that we would have a passion as Philip did to be open to the proddings of your spirit to tell other people about Jesus. Pray these things in your name. Everybody together said? Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. <clears throat> this morning, not tonight, we're talking about the making of a missionary. And uh, you might know this about me. I was actually born and raised in Hong Kong. My parents were missionaries. Uh, I have photographic evidence of this. This is me when I was young. I don't know how young. Young and with more hair, the striped shirt one in the front, that's me. Uh, standing right outside the church that my dad started in Kowloon, uh, right on Jordan Road, a uh, small little apartment building that we convert, converted into a church. 
What you might not know about me uh, is that my grandparents were actually missionaries. I have a picture here of Leland Homer. In 1952, after graduating from Moody Bible Institute and partnering up with Bible Baptist Fellowship, uh, he and his wife, who was pregnant at the time, got onto a boat to go to Taiwan and in 1952 uh, started both their ministry and their family there. Grandma and Grandpa Homer had five kids in the span of 10 years there in Taiwan. Uh, This is Grandpa Leland there in the front, breaking ground on one of the churches that he started. And not only do I have a little bit of uh, missionary passion in my bones and in my blood, there's actually a bit of missionary sacrifice as well. Uh, The next picture is of Grandpa's funeral. It was coming home from a missions gathering one night, a church service that grandpa was doing. Uh, Grandpa got into a car accident. My dad was just barely 10 at the time and that wrapped up grandpa's ministry there in Taiwan. And so with that sacrifice, uh, it actually didn't end there. Um, Grandma took it a step further. Uh, I don't know much about Leland Homer, except for the stories uh, that grandma and my dad have told me about, but I do know quite a bit about grandma. This is Mary Homer. After Leland, my grandpa died, uh, the missions agency called my grandma up and said, hey, we're so sorry for your loss, um, but uh, we'll go ahead and buy you the tickets for you to bring the rest of your family home. Mary Homer, uh, who is a stubborn woman, gets on the phone with the missions agency that is supporting her to stay there in Taiwan and says, it was both Mary and Leland Homer that were called to serve God in Taiwan. This doesn't change just because my husband is dead. The missions agency wasn't gonna take no for the answer. And so they said, hey, we don't have a policy for a a woman to be doing ministry without a man. And so we will not continue your support. And Mary again gets on the phone and says, my calling hasn't changed. Leland and Mary were called to serve God in Taiwan. And just because my husband is dead does not sacrifice the calling that God has put on my life. Grandma Homer raised five kids in Taiwan on her dead husband's social security check taking odd jobs here and there, becoming a dorm mom for Morrison Academy uh, in order to pay the bills and continued on because she had this conviction that she was called to be a missionary. Man, like I said, like a passion for missions is like, it's in my bones, it's in my blood. But here's what I know, that even for me, the ability to shrink back from that calling and to prioritize things like meetings and different priorities, different pressures that are coming my way, that those other things become the things that I'm most concerned about, that, I'm, that, that are things in the forefront is so, such an easy switch, such an easy sacrifice for me to make. And what I wanna do this morning is remind us that just as Mary Homer was called to Taiwan to be a missionary, so each and every one of us who calls ourselves a follower of Jesus is called to be a missionary. In Acts chapter number one, kind of the theme verse for the book of Acts, the verse that we've been using as our anchor as we walk through the book, Jesus makes this extremely clear. Acts chapter one, verse eight says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. And this isn't a one-off thing that Jesus is telling his followers. This is a consistent message that we see Jesus repeating over and over again. One of the famous ones is at the end of Matthew. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Jesus gives this command, not just to the disciples who were there to watch him ascend up into heaven, but Jesus gives this command to everyone who says, I'm a follower of Jesus. His command is simple. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You might not know this, but you are called to be a missionary. I might forget this, but I am called to be a missionary. This morning, as we're looking at the making of a missionary, uh, what we're gonna be looking at is five kind of five waypoints that we see in Philip's life of what, what was the progression that brought him to fruitful missionary service. Uh, I don't play video games often as much, but my son loves racing video games. Uh, and as he's screaming around in, you know, in whatever car that he just bought a million miles an hour through the created towns, there's always these in a, like an actual legitimate race when you're not just running around, you know, doing shenanigans in the game. Uh, there's always the little waypoints where it's like you go through this checkpoint and then you go through the next checkpoint and they're all located on the map. And after you go through these five checkpoints, then you're at the end. That's, that's kind of what we're going to be going through. If you wanna reach the finish line of a fruitful missionary life, here are the five waypoints that we see in Philip's life. Point number one, <clears throat> be part of the team. Be part of the team. Philip's story doesn't start here in Acts chapter number eight. Philip's first appearance in the book of Acts is actually a couple of chapters back. What we started uh, looking at last week in Acts chapter number six, the problem that presented itself was there are hungry widows. And the apostles were like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's not a good idea for the apostles to leave the ministry of the word and of prayer in order to serve tables. So let's find seven men that are this good character filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can assign them to this task. Last week, we looked at Stephen and both his ministry and then the consequences of it. The second person that is mentioned in that group is Philip. So where Philip's story start, where his missionary journey begins is this, serving. Meals on wheels in first century Jerusalem. Whenever I think of serving, especially in the church context. And even when I look at it here in Philip's life, here, here's the, the two things that I think. It's probably a significant waste of talent and it looks like a really hard thing to prioritize. Think, think about it. Philip, a man with character, integrity, we're seeing what he's able to do later on in the, later on in the book. And the task that he's presented with and given, given is, hey, you need to cook and deliver dinner to, to Samantha over there because she's hungry. Like, that's, that's the job that I get? Like meals on wheels, delivering food? I think so many times, many of us, we don't start the journey, we don't start the, minister, the missionary calling because we miss this first step. The first step is actually a step that was prioritized by Jesus. Here's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10. In Mark 10, he says, hey guys, check this out. Even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The priority of the Christian church, those who follow Jesus, step number one, the where, where, where we actually say go is a heart of service. Service many times that seems like I'm overqualified for, and it's gonna be really hard to prioritize time for this. Look at the example that Jesus gives. In John chapter 13, can you imagine this? Jesus, I, I don't know how clear of a picture he had for what uh, his passion was gonna look like. The, the, the day of his crucifixion and then laying in the grave and the resurrection, I don't know like what kind of foresight he had, but I imagine that there was a little bit of pressure right before all of it went down, right before like he's about to stand before the Sanhedrin, before Pilate, be whipped, be crucified. Before all of that, there's a little bit of pressure on Jesus. Here's what Jesus does. <clears throat> John chapter 13, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place and said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. 
If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And then he gives a promise. If you know these things, blessed, happy are you if you do them. Washing feet? I mean, talk about somebody who's overqualified. I mean, Jesus could have miracle, poof, clean feet, right? He could have been like, I'm about to save the world. I'm not washing anybody's feet. But the example that Jesus gives to us is a servant's heart, even when we're overqualified, even when it's difficult to find time to prioritize that. And for so many people who, who, who take that step to say, I'll serve, I'll serve. What they find is that that first step is a step that leads them into fruitful missionary enterprise. Stephen Foster is now the pastor uh, of a church in Oxford. And initially he said, no love for the church, but I went kind of as an obligation. But there was something that caught his attention that changed his mind. Here's a little video from Pastor Stephen Foster. If I'm honest, I never really liked the church. I didn't even really like Christians that much. I used to think of it like a package deal, like you get Jesus and so you get the church and Christians thrown. It's just part of the package. And uh, there are some bits you like Jesus, some bits you don't like so much, just like the church and Christians um, used to find that a bit annoying. But I'd turn up the church and go through it, but I didn't really enjoy going to church. And then one day uh, I was at the back of our church in East London and someone said to me, oh, we need help to run the coffee team. And I was like, I was like working like 70, 80 hour a week. I'm like, what? And they were like, yeah, we, Steve, we really need your help running the coffee team on a Sunday. And I was thinking, I'm a barrister, I'm not a barista. Like I've got a job, I don't need another job to run the coffee team. But I just, you know, sometimes you, you just can't even think of what to say. So I was like, okay, I'll do it, I'll do it, okay. And, and I instantly thought, why did I do that? So I turn up next week like, you know, trying to get the cups and everything, get the coffee right. As I handed these cups to people, something really changed in me. I found myself, as I handed coffee to these people, growing in love for them. I was like, these people are amazing. Like, this is this extraordinarily diverse community. It's been gathered from across the area. Probably not another place that looks as diverse and integrated as this. This is a miracle. And then I, even people I found a little bit more frustrating and complicated, as I handed them their coffee, I kind of grew in love for them. And I kind of basically fell in love with the church. And then I kind of went back to the person who'd asked me to do it. I said, we need a new coffee machine. We need better beans. We need better monks. Like, we, come on, these are amazing people. I want this to be the best coffee that they get. You know, they, they're coming to church on a Sunday morning. I got more and more passionate. I started to build a team to serve coffee on a Sunday morning. I sometimes say, making coffee changed my life because I fell in love with the Church of Jesus Christ. I didn't realize why it was special. I didn't realize why it mattered. And as I made coffee for people, I suddenly realized, oh, the church is like the bride of Jesus Christ. It's like the thing he gave himself for. Like the church is God's plan for the salvation of the world. There's no plan B and God is gonna build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So like, God is putting all his eggs in the church basket. And I realized over those few weeks, there's a beautiful thing here. Yes, it messes up. Yes, it makes mistakes. You'll never find a perfect church, but it's a beautiful thing. And I thought, that's what I want to spend my life building. Stevens Foster's life was changed by serving coffee. Here's my hope. I hope that some of your guys' life will be changed as you're watching bounce houses at Spring Fair. I hope some of your guys' lives will be changed as you're holding a door open at our Easter services. I hope some of your guys' lives will be changed as you watch kids in our kids' ministry. I hope some of your guys' lives will be changed by putting on a security jacket, making sure our campus is safe and just enforcing the policies. I hope some of your guys' lives are changed when we get volunteers to involve themselves with his kids, our ministry for special needs. I hope some of your guys' lives are changed when you find a place that God has called you that you are overqualified for. Absolutely no question about it. 
that you are gonna have difficulty finding the ability to carve out time to make this happen. Both of those things are true. And yet no missionary becomes what God wants him to be without a servant heart like Jesus that prioritizes things like washing feet. Seems like I'm above this. That's where the story begins. Are you on the team? Just, just to be real transparent with you guys, uh, here at Venture, man, we have amazing volunteer teams. We do. But there's a couple of places that we have gaps. On our security team, we need law enforcement specialists, people that have a military background, people that have a police background, to jump in to say like, hey, let me bring the, some expertise alongside lay volunteers. We have extra eyes, we have extra hands. What we need is a little bit more expertise. Like I said, in his kids. Man, in all of our kids' ministry, we have an army, an army of middle school and high school students that are doing like the best ministry ever. What we need is a handful of adults who will come alongside, be like committed coaches to help like create a vibrant element preschool to elementary contexts, both for kids that are in our main program, for kids that are in our His Kids special needs program, adults that say like, hey, I'm overqualified for this, but let me jump in. Special need for security, special needs for kids, special needs in our special needs program. We have a couple of needs for people who are familiar with the unique unique challenges that come with inviting special needs uh, kids into our program in order to facilitate a safe place for them, for the rest of the kids, to put parents' minds at ease while we, while we have them. And we, again, all of these things, they're already happening, but man, there, there's an opportunity with a cup of coffee to, to not just make church programs better, but to change your heart. And honestly, I'm, I'm most familiar with church because this is my nine to five. I, I eat, sleep, drink, breathe church ministry. I, I was encouraged this week, Charlie Hoy, our, one of our, our, our Sunday morning director, uh, he's coaching two little leagues. He has two kids and two different teams, coaches dropped out. And so Charlie stepped up and said like, hey, I will coach these teams. You know what, I see that, you're, you're, you're serving. You, you're, you are looking for a way that you can get in, you can influence people with the gospel. Man, do it, whatever guys it is, whether it's in kids ministry or coffee or a little league coach, be part of God's serving team. Waypoint number two, be sensitive to the voice of God. Be sensitive to the voice of God. In Philip's story, it starts with persecution. Saul is ravaging the church. That kicks Philip out of Jerusalem. He goes into Samaria. And then in verse number 26, an angel of the Lord appears and says, hey, I got an appointment for you on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza, get on down there. And here's my favorite part in verse number 20, in verse number 26. I, I lost it. Oh, excuse me, right at the beginning of verse number 27. The angel of the Lord says, rise and go towards the south of the road. And then in verse number 27, and he arose and went. Message received, obedience immediately. Same thing happens in verse number 29. The spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. Verse number 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. What step number two is in the life of becoming a missionary is becoming sensitive to what God speaks. So many of us think, well, God's not speaking to me. Here's what Dallas Willard would say about that. The fact that we do not hear does not mean that God is not speaking to us. We know that messages from radio and television programs are passing through our bodies and brains at all hours of the day. Messages that an appropriately tuned receiver could pluck from the very air that we breathe. Here's the problem, that we are not attuned to God's voice. It's not that God's not speaking. It's that for, for a handful of reasons, whether it's busyness or whether it's a lack of dedication and attention, we're not hearing from God. 
two primary ways that I've experienced that God speaks to me. Number one, again, another Dallas Willard quote, God speaks most commonly, God's speaking, excuse me, most commonly occurs in conjunction with study of and reflection on the Bible, the written word of God. How does God speak? 66 books of it right here, ready for you to pick it up and read what he has to say to you. That's why Jesus says in John 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, there's supposed to be a relationship where we're naturally just resting, waiting in the words of God. Not only just reading the Bible, is that a way that God like helps just in little ways to challenge me, to speak to me, to encourage me. For me, the more prevalent way is by hearing the word of God taught. Uh, I'm a whether it's just because it's, you know, what I like to do. I love not only speaking, I love listening to the Bible preached. And there's something about a preacher standing up, opening the word of God and bringing it to a point of like a call to action saying like, let's do this because of the word of God. Man, that speaks to me. I was so encouraged this last week on Tuesday night, a high school student came and said, hey, Charles, uh, can we chat? And I thought he'd left. And so I kind of like was ignoring him for a little bit. I, got, I thought he wasn't around anymore. And then like, it was way past, uh, way past when youth group ended. And he's like, Charles, are we gonna hang out or not? I was like, I am so sorry. Let me walk you out to your car. And as we're walking out to the car, he said, Charles, uh, last week in Tim's message, he was talking about how Stephen had, had, had a balance of grace and truth just like Jesus had a balance of grace and truth. He said, Charles, like the grace part comes naturally to me. I have such a hard time speaking the truth. And then he gave me a contextualization of it. He said, I was meeting with a friend and they're going through a difficult time right now. And we were, I was just had the chance to grab some coffee and to encourage them. But in that encouragement, what I wanted to say was, of course, you're having a difficult time. You're missing, you're, you're hanging out with, you're hanging out with a bad choice of friends. You're making bad life decisions. And he said, I wanted to not only be, bring grace into the conversation, but to bring some truth. And so he said, Charles, how do I grow in my ability to speak truth as well? Spent a few minutes talking over it with him. And, and here, here was, I, here's what I took away from it. He's sensitive to the word of God that he hears the word of God's preached. And from that, it's not just like, okay, I took the notes, I filled in the blank, folded up, put it in my back pocket, done. It's God, how do I take the words that are coming from your word and have them change my life? Sensitivity to the word of God. Thirdly, be willing to go outside your comfort zone. Be willing to go outside your comfort zone. When things uh, <clears throat> when we take the time to hear from God, here's the challenging part. It's not uncommon that God says, I'm gonna take you just one step past what you're comfortable with. In Philip's story, I think there are two things that he was probably pretty uncomfortable with. One, did you, did you hear what the spirit said to him? He's like, hey, go join next to the chariot. I, I'm gonna tell you the truth. I've never seen a chariot in my life. I have no idea how fast they go. I imagine it's a little bit faster than like the average walking pace. So Philip's like, J -j me? J hey, what you reading? In the first century world, uh, the, the dignity of it, like you, you've probably heard about it if, uh, if you've heard a sermon on the prodigal son where it was a big deal that the father ran over to his son because in the first century world, running was like, it was beneath you. Like men don't run, right? Kids run, servants run. If you're a free man, you don't run. Philip's like, come on. And not only does he have to hoof it to get up to, to the chariot, when he gets there, he looks and goes, this is gonna be a tough conversation. You're an Ethiopian. I'm a good Jewish boy. I've, I've never had any Ethiopian friends. And not only are you an Ethiopian, but the scripture tells us that he had made some sacrifices, that he was an Ethiopian eunuch. And on both of these accounts, according to the Old Testament law, 
This was somebody that was not going to be an easy relationship for Philip to enter into, but yet the spirit of the God was go outside of your comfort zone, run right up to him and ask him what's going on. And Philip debases himself a little bit, enters into a situation where he is crossing cultural and racial bounds and stepping into a place to share the good news. And when we decide that we are gonna be missionaries, God is gonna consistently call us to step outside of our comfort zones in order to reach the people that God's doing a work in. At this point, I kind of just wanna take a parenthesis and talk about uh, a priority that we start seeing develop here specifically in Acts chapter eight. Jesus kind of prophesied about it beginning in Acts chapter one. He's like, hey, you're gonna be witnesses for me for sure. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, utter part, uttermost parts of the earth. But here in Acts chapter eight, it starts taking root. And as the story begins to grow, what we're gonna see is the church will no longer be isolated and focused in on Jerusalem and just the Jewish people, but it is going to be something that is spread to the furthest reaches of the world. And honestly, this is something that is uniquely beautiful about the movement that Jesus started. Every other world religion is isolated, is, is, the majority of it is focused in right around the immediate area of where the founder of the religion started. Uh, if, if you take uh, Islam for an example, let me get the numbers right so I don't say anything inappropriate. <clears throat> for, for Muslims, they primarily live in the Middle East and the surrounding areas of Africa and South Asia. That's 96% of Muslims live in the Middle East, Africa, and then down into Indonesia. Only 4% of Muslims live outside of that area. 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia. 98% of Hindus live in India or South Asia. With Christianity, it is totally different. And this was God's intention from the beginning. It's 25% of Christians are in the Caribbean in Central and South America. 22% are in Africa. 15% are in Asia, and that number is growing quickly. 12% are in North America, 20% in Europe. Richard Bauckham writes, almost certainly Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion. And that must say something about it. That from the very beginning, Jesus' intention as it came to race and cultures was that this is not going to be an isolated movement. This is going to be something that, that crosses borders, that crosses boundaries, that there is going to be a broad reflection of God's good creation in every race, in every culture, in every part of the world, that God wants everyone to bring glory to himself. And that is something that I love, not only about Christianity in general, but Venture Christian Church specifically. That are we perfect in this area? Absolutely not. Are we intentionally focusing on like, hey, how can we, how can we reach our area and all who are in our area? Absolutely, forefront of our planning processes. But man, I'm so thankful to be in this church that actively says, hey, we're not gonna have a comfortable church. We're gonna have a church that follows what Jesus told us to do, to make disciples of all nations, of everybody. <clears throat> getting back to coming out of our comfort zone. I actually don't think though that racial and cultural issues are the primary blockade for us getting out of our comfort zone. What, what do I mean by that? I don't think that there's, I think that there might be the slimmest of all margins, maybe a little bit of like uh, subconscious issues, but I don't think anybody in here is like, I'm not gonna share the gospel with those people. I don't think racism or cultural issues are in the forefront of a church here in California. Are there issues? Sure. And we're intentionally trying to like say, hey, how can we be a church for all people? You know what I think the biggest obstacle, the biggest step out of our comfort zone that God is calling us to? Time, time. 
I think the biggest difficulty that we have in our day, in our age, is not crossing, is not crossing racial boundaries, but it's just being able to carve out enough time to be able to make significant ministry. Since I'm telling stories about my family and missions in, in, in my life, I wanted to highlight my mom. My mom uh, was a saint. And one of the things that she prioritized and modeled for our family was being a good missionary. I didn't notice like this particular segment of her life until I was older and I was out of the house and I was going through some of the, few, some of the same things that she was going through. In the early 2000s, we had just moved back from Hong Kong in order to send us kids to Christian schools, mom took a job teaching elementary school. And she realized at that point, hey, I kind of want to brush up on my education. And so she enrolled in a master's program. We were up in, living in Hayward. She went to Cal State Hayward before it became Cal State East Bay. And because my mom was passionate about the church that my dad was starting, she was the de facto kids ministry leader there at Heritage Baptist Church in Oakland that my dad was starting. And so my mom was a full-time teacher pretty much a full-time kids pastor. And then uh, she was going to school as well. And I don't know how she did this. Every day, mom packed our lunches. And like, I, I, I don't pack my kids' lunches. You can ask them, be like, I don't have time for this. But mom packed my lunches every day. In that season, as mom's going through all of that, I remember mom coming to us kids one day and be like, hey, we're gonna start a Bible club for kids on Thursday nights in the clubhouse down the street. Mom, you running out of stuff to do here? Like I see you up until 2 a.m. doing homework and working on lessons plans. What do you mean that you're gonna start a kids club to tell kids about Jesus? She's like, don't worry about it. And so I don't know if she paid for these copies that she made at school or not, but she came home the next day with like a fat stack of uh, invitations to Frogs Club at the clubhouse down at our uh, neighborhood there in Hayward and just like kind of employed the kids. It was just like, and here's your stack. Go put them on every door in our community. Here's your stack and kind of spread us all out. And then mom just decided, uh, in addition to all of her responsibilities on Thursday, she would have a full-fledged kids program. I'm talking about music, I'm talking about crafts, I'm talking about snacks, I'm talking about games, all of it for like, 20, like 12 to 20 kids from the neighborhood who would show up so she could tell them about Jesus. I'm so glad that mom didn't use like, I don't have time to be the excuse for her to not be a good missionary, but that she stepped across uh, stepped out of her comfort zone and said, hey, I'm called to be a missionary. I don't care if that's in Hong Kong. I don't care if that's in Hayward. I don't care if that's in Taiwan. This is God's calling on my life. Stepping out of her comfort zone. The next checkpoint, waypoint, be ready to point to Jesus. Be ready to point to Jesus. You see, God was already doing a work in the Ethiopian's life. He, he had had something that was in him that he couldn't find in the religions in Africa, that he would felt called to go up to Jerusalem. And when he got to Jerusalem, he would have been shut out of the temple. No eunuch was allowed to come and worship, worship God in the temple. But even despite that rejection, he buys an expensive scroll of the prophet Isaiah, no small investment for that time. And as he's going down, he's reading a passage. And here's, I, I'm kind of jealous of Philip. Philip gets not even like the soft pitch uh, softball, if that's wrong terminology, I've never played a day of baseball in my life. This is T-ball this is status where the ball is like put right on the tee and Philip's just like, watch me. And it's the most easy setup in the world for Philip to point to Jesus. Philip is, re excuse me, the eunuch is reading in Isaiah chapter 53. And I wonder if Philip goes to him and says like, hey, 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 could you rewind a couple of verses? The passage that is quoted there in Acts chapter number eight starts in Isaiah 53, verse number seven. But if you rewind just a couple of verses to verse number five, here's what Isaiah says, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's an easy place to start and say, let's go to Jesus. 
And that's what Philip does. And I think that's what a good missionary does. I think sometimes we overcomplicate it. You can point to Jesus. Uh, one of the routines that my family has, I don't know how many times I've watched through the Harry Potter uh, movies is, I, I'm probably three or four times in, but every time we get to the last movie, my kids hate watching it with me. I, I, can't, I can't help myself. Um, the reason I can't help myself is, spoiler alert, um, at the end of the movie, Harry Potter dies. Voldemort kills him. And, and Harry feels compelled to go because this is the only way that he can save his friends. But in Harry's pocket is the resurrection stone. And so just as the right moment, as it looks like Voldemort and evil are going to win, Harry Potter rolls out of, whoever the big guy is holding it, rolls out of the arms. He's like, ha ha, I'm alive. And then goes to fight Voldemort and conquers, goodness conquers over evil. I can't watch it with my kids because I'm just like, guys, it's a story of Jesus. It's a, it's a story of Jesus. Are you guys seeing this? That he had to die in order to bring salvation to his friends. He had to conquer, after he, after he dies, he resurrects and then brings evil to its knees in order to set everything right again. It doesn't get any more gospel than that. And if we can take Harry Potter and point our kids to Jesus, I think that you guys have enough creativity to find a million ways in the songs that you listen to, in the books that you read, in the things that you see around the world today. Man, there's a little bit of brokenness. Man, use that brokenness to point to Jesus. Man, there's some difficulty. There's death in the family. Man, let's use that to point to Jesus. Any circumstance that comes, here's what a good missionary does. A good missionary contextualizes what's going on and says, let's use this to point to Jesus. Which brings us to our last checkpoint. <clears throat> Expect God to move. Expect God to move. I think a lot of us are like, we have this fear internally that if we point people to Jesus, that it's only gonna be met with rejection and that we're only gonna set that person's faith development backwards. What I love in this story is that the eunuch sees water. He's like, whoa, 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 time out, time out. There's water. Can we sign this deal right now? Like, can you confirm that I'm part of team Jesus? Can I, I don't want the terms of this deal to change. I think that this is too good to be true. Can I get in on this right now? And honestly, that makes sense. For somebody who had been shut out of all of the worship that he was eagerly, eagerly seeking for, finally to find somebody who says, you're welcomed in. I, again, I don't know what Philip said to the eunuch, but I hope that as they were rolling up that scroll, he's like, hey, we're in Isaiah 53. Can I fast forward a little bit to Isaiah chapter 56? Here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 56. <clears throat> Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. To this eunuch, he was, but the promise of God was, you're included. You're welcomed in. You don't need to be an outsider. You've had to sacrifice the opportunity to have a family, which in the first century world, power was good, self-accomplishment was good, but the way that you defined your legacy was with your family and he had sacrificed that. And what the opportunity that was given to him was, come join this family. I think sometimes we just, we, we don't realize the good that is promised to us in the gospel. And we become hesitant to invite other people to embrace the gospel. Let's expect God to move. And the great part is it's not our work. Remember going back to Acts 1.8, the, the commandment that was given had like a little forward clause. It says, hey, you will receive power 
after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And it's in the power of the Holy Spirit then that we are witnesses. Jesus says something similar in Matthew 16. To Peter, he says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Here's what a good missionary does. A good missionary is faithful in their responsibility and open-handed in what God's gonna do. Who knows if, if your next encounter is gonna be somebody who says, here's water, what's stopping me to get baptized or not? The results aren't up to us. Jesus said, I will build my church, but let's not allow fear to get in the way, to, to, to short circuit our commitment of being what he called us to be, missionaries. <clears throat> As you look back over that map, where are you stalling out? Do you have a team that you're on? If you have that team, are you sensitive to God's voice? When you come into this place, when you come into his word, are you anticipating that God's going to speak to you? Are you, will, are you willing to invest time, step out of your comfort zone? Or are you willing to point to Jesus and not just be a witness with your good works, but actually a witness with your words and say, let's talk about Jesus. Are you expecting that God's going to work with you and through you as a missionary? Where are you stalling out? There's kind of two applications that I want uh, us to consider tonight. Tonight, this morning. <laughs> two applications regardless. One, how are you being a missionary right where you are? I was listening to an interview from Pat Gelsinger. When some of you guys hear the name Pat Gelsinger, you might think, oh, that must be Nathan Gelsinger's dad. You know, the dad of the best small groups pastor here in the South Bay, and he is. Some of you guys hear the name Pat Gelsinger, and you think, I think he's the CEO of Intel, and that is also true. Pat Gelsinger was giving an interview uh, about the balance of work and, uh, and a calling as a missionary. And he just said, uh, one, one of the, one of the phrases that I loved was back from his days uh, before he was at Intel. Uh, he said that, hey, I am the senior pastor of the tech company that I'm working for. I was like, what? He said, yeah, in the interview that I listened to, he said, the day after that I like really committed myself to Jesus, what changed the next day when I went to work was that I was no longer just working for Intel, I was glad to receive a paycheck from Intel, but my CEO that I was loyal to was none other than Jesus Christ. And that totally changed the way that I approached my workplace. And as somebody, you don't get to be much more of a senior performer in the Silicon Valley other than the CEO of Intel. And even in his level, his priority, his focus is how can I be a missionary here? So my question to you is, how are you a missionary in your workplace, in your family, among your friends? The second application is this. Could God be calling you into full-time vocational ministry? I, there, I say maybe in like the last 10, 15 years, the church has stopped asking people to consider whether or not they personally are called to sacrifice the way that they're living right now and to be voted full-time to ministry wherever God would lead them. And I just kind of want to revive that. High schooler, is there a chance that God is calling you not to go into the workforce, but to find out where is the kingdom project that I can be invested in and I'm gonna give my life to be a missionary? If you even, even if you're not just looking into your into your career. Uh, again, Pat Gelsinger said that right after he became a Christian, he really felt like God was calling him to let go of his tech career in order to serve God full-time vocationally. And it wasn't until he finally said, okay, God, I surrender, that God's message was, hey, your workplace is going to be, your, your mission field is gonna be here at Intel. But how many of us had surrendered and said, God, I will do whatever you want me to do. I feel like we don't ask it enough as a church. Are you called 
to be a full-time missionary. Here's what I'm gonna end with. We've talked about how to become a missionary. Can I tell you why to become a missionary? Here's the last picture that I took with my mom. I think this is 2017, the end of 2017. Uh, mom had been fighting with cancer. And so dad said, hey, I don't know how much time mom has left. And all of the kids were able to fly back, visit mom in Taiwan for one last time. And then after this trip where, we, where, where I took a bad picture, but special to me, uh, mom passed away and the whole family came back again a second time to Taiwan uh, for mom's funeral. At mom's funeral, it was so clear. The six kids that she raised, I mean, we're, we're not all doing the same thing. We've all kind of gone different directions, but every one of the six kids to a T knows that the thing that was most important to mom was whether or not we knew and were living for Jesus Christ. In addition to the six kids, there were people from Hong Kong, there were people from Taiwan, there were people from here in the States, all that had flown together to Taipei to celebrate mom's life because she had given her life as a missionary. She actually died from cancer, uh, a lung cancer. The doctors initially didn't think uh, that, that white women would get. Uh, it's a cancer that was almost specifically in Asian women. And I think the reason that she got it was because for decades of her life, she was ministering and serving in Asia. You couldn't have had a more joyful and significant and meaningful funeral apart from my mom's funeral because it was so clear to absolutely everybody there, this woman made appropriate investments with her life. She was a missionary. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, if there's anyone in here who needs a nudge, needs a kick, needs a push to be obedient to your call, would you be speaking to them so clearly right now? And Lord, for each and every one of us, would you have would you encourage us to live up to the calling that you've placed on our lives? Praisings in your name, amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.